Hi, this is Mary Coughlin, and I want to welcome you to the Care Out Loud podcast, presented to you by Caring Essentials Collaborative, founder of the Trauma-Informed Professional Certificate Program and internationally recognized leader in trauma-informed developmentally supportive education for parents and professionals serving babies, children, and families in crisis around the globe. I'm wicked excited you're here as we talk about caring out loud. In each moment lies a unique opportunity to create a kinder, more connected and compassionate world one moment at a time. And it all begins with you. Welcome back to part two of my conversation with Dr. Olivio Provenzi. We'll pick up where we left off talking about the power of words to drive our actions and discover that even though bad things happen, it doesn't always guarantee a bad outcome. As resilient and adaptive individuals, our strengths and our love for one another can overcome the most challenging of lived experiences and foster post-traumatic growth and healing. Thanks for joining us. I absolutely love this. You are like talking my language, my friend. Um, and I and I like that you um, paused to say you don't want to use that word fighting because um, mm. I, I I agree with you. I mean, what you resist persists, and the language that we chooses we, that we choose creates the experiences that we um, we experience that we that we live. So I I love that you're saying that, and I think you're right um, about the communication. I, there's no ill intention. But I think we've just all been accultured for decades into a very siloed uh, world, you know, and um, you stay on your side, I stay in my side, and, and that doesn't work. And I love how you used the word bonding. Um, I mean, you, you know, oftentimes we think of the word bonding with, you know, um, parent, infant yes. experiences, but as a human community, um, we do need to bond with each other. It is about the connectedness piece. And particularly in a post-pandemic world, I think it's it's incumbent on us to really examine what we just went through as a global community. What are the lessons? I mean, yes, there was lots of pain and tragedy um, and trauma, but I think that's just part of what life is. It's just that we had a shared moment globally that now globally we are invited to examine that. What did we discover? What works, what didn't work? And take that moving forward instead of just you know replaying the same record over and over again. So it's really beautiful what you're sharing with me, incredibly innovative um, to really expose people to research that they normally would never ever be aware of really you know and and that small effort to bridge that gap I, I think the last time i i saw something in the literature it said there's like a 17 year gap between research findings and yes. by the by the time they become mainstream and we've got to narrow that gap in in meaningful ways rather quickly yes. i think Yes, I think there are, I mean, there are reasons why it is like it is, uh, mm. but uh, for example, uh, it's difficult to translate something which is uh, uh, probabilistic in nature, like science, mm. 
we always use this p-value, no? which, which means that there is some probability that we are saying something correct, or maybe mm -hmm. it's not going to apply to any individual. And uh, But each individual wants that that theory, that discovery applies to everyone the same yes. way. So there is a different expectation, different languages. It's not easy, but uh, it's something that uh, that we should do. I always, um, uh, you, you made me think about uh, trauma-informed care now when you were talking, Good. because one, one of the concepts is uh, not, uh, I mean, not what's wrong with you, but uh, what, what happened. happened. And, mm -hmm. and I think it is something very close to, uh, in, in Utah, Salt Lake City University, uh, there is a, a researcher, uh, Bruce Ellis, which is another inspiring colleague for me, um, working on this concept of the hidden talents. So, uh, because sometimes we, we only focus on the negative, we expect negative outcomes from negative uh, experiences in a linear way, mm -hmm. but in many cases, uh, when we are exposed to adverse situations, adverse conditions, we may also develop something which may be adaptive, which may be mm -hmm. positive if you take care of that, if you take it seriously. And yeah. he makes a lot of examples from animal model research, humans, and uh, I can make an example from preterm babies because uh, some years ago we tested emotion regulation or frustration in uh, uh, four-year-old uh, uh, preterm kids with a task which was funny in a way, but also, I mean, honestly frustrating for them, which was a um, transparent box with a toy inside and uh, closed with a locker. But the key that we gave to the child was wrong, didn't oh. fit into that. So we let them play with this for some minutes. And uh, among all the kids that we had in that project, full term and preterm, only two preterm babies found a different way to solve this problem like opening the box with strength like oh. okay, play, play with the toy and there was no adult in the room so but when they heard that the adult was coming back in the room they just put the toy back and when the, when the experimenter asked oh did you i mean were you able to to open they just say no <laughs> you know <laughs> It was so funny looking at the videotape later because we didn't, we weren't there at the moment. So we just took the video and look at the video some days uh, after we, we took it. And again, it was not surprising for me that it, it, they were preterm. So uh, when you're exposed to adverse situations, sometimes you may develop a different way of dealing with stress, with challenges. And uh, we are biased in a way because we always search for the negative side and this this is a, an implicit theory about adversities uh, we don't consider for example epigenetics tell us that there is a biological learning which is not bad it's not good it's just something that your body mm -hmm. remembers your body knows and uh, so it's a different way of looking um, for developmental trajectories and i like this idea of the hidden talents uh, that i'm i'm I mean, I, I never work with Bruce Ellis, but but he's a really a big guy. And if you if you wow. want to 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 interview other people, I, I guess he's going to tell you a lot of nice nice things. You'll, yes, you'll have to hook <laughs> you'll have to hook me up with him. You know you, what you were uh, making me think um, when you were talking about the ingenuity of the premature um, hmm. little kid um, is I wonder what their um, relationship experience was. 
You know, did they mm-hmm. feel, because it, it seems to me, and I don't, I, I might be projecting this, but I think there's also literature to support this, that um, individuals that are born premature or have some kind of a, you know, intensive care experience during their early life, if they are supported, if they receive lots of love and nurturance in spite mm-hmm. of their adversity, they tend to thrive and cultivate yes. resi- resilience. And so, you know, you you were making me think about um, that little individual and the ingenuity that they experience or they expressed um, regardless of their their story, you know, being one way, you know, you could think of it being one way, but actually they surprised everybody with their um, their ingenuity, I guess, for the lack of a better word. Um, you don't have any insights about that, do you? Or- <laughs> well, you, you make me think about the, uh, there is a famous uh, project, which is now probably lasting more than two decades or three decades, Ooh. which was done in Bucharest, uh, the, the Bucharest project by Nathan Fox and Chas Zina, uh, oh, I have heard of that. So yeah, they were they during the last decades they are studying the effects of institutionalization on kids, and um, they discover something similar. So those who were assigned to family care before a certain age, like eighteen or twenty-four months, they had better developmental outcomes, uh, even if they were exposed to institutionalization and separation mm-hmm. from from their own family. So there is a window. There is a at least. Uh, the first uh, thousand days, I would say, uh, a very important window in which we should uh, focus our intervention because we can really obtain uh, optimal outcomes even in those who are exposed to uh, risk conditions. And um, in in scientific terms, this is known as the differential uh, susceptibility hypothesis. Uh, So, there are some individuals who are so plastic that they can be very affected by negative experience, but also very affected mm-hmm. by positive and protective interventions. Yeah. And uh, I don't know how much it is applied or explored in the field of preterm babies and developmental care, but it's yeah. something that makes you think about yeah. all the things we, we can do. Yes. Yeah. And and I think that um, it's a gradual shift, you know, to try and mm-hmm. um, for clinicians to try and understand that that they matter too in the lives of these individuals beyond their clinical um, and technical skills and and knowledge that we really do become part of that human network, you know, mm-hmm. as uh, related to that little individual. Um, and I think we need to embrace that, but it's it sometimes can be challenging because, and I, again, I don't know how um, clinicians get accultured into healthcare over in Italy or Europe for that matter, but here, at least when I was a young clinician, which was many years ago, um, it was very much, um, you know, don't, don't get connected, you know, don't get, uh, you know, personal. You have to maintain that professional facade, um, you know, because it would be um, a threat to your own integrity, right? If you get all emotional and stuff, it may um, undermine your ability to be an effective clinician. But now what I see in lots of other research um, and some really cool work, um, I don't know if you've ever read anything by this woman, Joan Halifax, but she was a Buddhist nun and she did a work with um, nurses that took care of patients who are at end of life or palliative care. Mm -hmm. And she found that there was a high degree of burnout 
in individuals that worked in this specialty. And what she discovered was that the burnout seemed to be a consequence of their distancing themselves from the suffering of others, but that when they really um, connected with these individuals, when they really cultivated healing relationships with these individuals, their burnout was much less. You're going to be sad no matter what, you know, suffering happens and distancing yourself from it is just, it's a fantasy. You're, you're still bearing witness to the suffering of another human. It's going to affect you. So you get to choose, do you want to be part of the loving process or do you want to just be sterile? Um, so it's, it's just, it's interesting, you know, and I, and I think the work that you're doing, the work that so many other researchers are doing um, really can help inform clinicians in the now, in, you know, in, in right now to show up differently, show up more loving, more compassionate, more understanding, because it will touch another person in a moment of maybe incredible darkness in, incredible fear that they may be experiencing and just imagine being that one light that can help make a difference for them. You know, it's just, it's really amazing. So I, I, I digressed a little bit. I'll come back <laughs> on point. Um, so how, I mean, you've been at this now for a long time. How do you see your work um, impacting the world? Like, what is the one thing that, uh, the one big thing that would um, tell you that you've done it? Woohoo! You know, you've made your mark in the world. <laughs> Huh. Okay, so when you send me the, the questions, these <laughs> and probably the last one are the were the most uh, difficult and challenging ones because I <laughs> usually I don't think I don't think that way. So I I, I need to to think about it. But I would I would focus on on the young minds. So I would focus on on the students that joined the lab. Uh, or the students, for example, um, so a few days ago, I was teaching in a music therapy course and talking about this wow. thing, the thing that you said of feeling your emotions while dealing with patients. So we were working on a clinical case and role-playing a bit. And when you do role-playing, you really feel emotions. It's not mock, yeah. it's, it's not it's fake, it's a, it's a real interaction. And there was this student and she was starting to cry and say, okay, you see, I'm not going to be a good therapist because I, I'm, I'm so sensitive, so emotional. And, and again, you see that this culture of distancing as a way to care is not only something that applied to previous generations or previous or, or uh. physicians or you know, this kind of hard uh, medical science, but also to young people that sometimes are affected by these biases, these yes. um, stereotypes. And uh, so I think that if I have to answer your question, so how this work is going to impact the world, I hope that we can use some of this knowledge together with all the other knowledge that other labs and other people are collecting to change a bit the culture of care, to, to, to start a new culture of care, for example, grounded in, in the concept of uh, fragility, or frailty, I don't know the right yeah. word in English. Yeah, yeah. fragility. Um, mm -hmm. Fragility, yeah, sorry. Um, I think this is, again, something that we try to make a distance with, mm -hmm. uh, but it's really the core of uh, taking care of others who are suffering. Because 
if you are not in contact with your own fragility. And epigenetics, at the end, uh, it is a discipline that tells us this story, so behavioral epigenetics, that everything that happens to us is embedded in our biology because we are fragile, because we are open, we are sensitive and, and plastic, and there is no way to, to fight that. So it's not fighting. The, the answer is recognizing that yeah. and, uh, and uh, exactly in uh, trauma-informed care. So what happened to you? What is happening to you? Let's start from this experience mm -hmm. level, the meaning-making you're, make, you're, you're doing uh, and, and how, how is it going to, to affect your present. And I think this kind of, the, of shift in the care culture is something that is going to make me say, well, at the end, um, I mean, it was good doing this this, yeah. uh, this research, yes. It's, I, I mean, what a beautiful legacy, you know, to, to help people realize that it is in their vulnerability, their, their fragileness, mm -hmm. their humanness, that they bring their most beautiful, loving self to the service of another human being, to just mm -hmm. embrace and accept that um, vulnerability. And I mean, it will, it, it will be a process, I think, to, to move to that place. But I think slowly but surely, people are realizing that. I think that there has been a lot of collective wisdom um, that has grown over these past few years. And, and of course, you know, beyond, but I think um, what we've all just gone through has really shown a light on the fact that our current uh, way of providing healthcare is not the way we really need to be meeting the needs of individuals who are ill, suffering, frightened, and 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 all of that stuff. And so, I think um, you're just so beautifully wise and 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 wonderful. I I've really enjoyed this. I do want to ask you one final question. When when you saw that uh, the the name of the podcast was care out loud. Um, yes. What, what thoughts did you have in your head? What did that mean to you? <laughs> um, okay. I thought it was something, I mean, an opportunity to talk about how important is engaging in care actions yeah. and yeah. just, and just uh, sharing that, just telling that, I mean, using, you know, using our voice, uh, the, mm, and this is something that we can do only uh, if we do it together. Uh, um, I, I, I really, again, I go back to the starting point of this podcast. So um, I was very lucky to be mentored by Rosario Montiroso, which was a really a professional father in a way for me. And this collaborative attitude that I saw in him, in um, even even in other people like like. Uh, uh, the, the head of the unit, Renato Borgatti, which is an yeah. incredible, incredible neuropsychiatrist. Uh, so this collaborative approach and the idea that uh, we can make big things only if we do it together, I think this is something that uh, uh, really makes a difference. So in the end, with this attitude, you can do even bigger things that uh, you cannot do just with knowledge, methodology, techniques. Yeah. Uh, um, and again, this is something that I hope to pass to the people in my lab, the, the students, this idea that, of, of course, they need to be good in specific techniques. This is going to shape the way they're going to do their job. But this attitude is the key, is the 
without that you can be a very good technician in something yes, but not yes. really not really able to make a change in any any place so uh yeah so when i thought about this care outline i thought about something like this something that can share the voice of care uh from this perspective of collaboration and uh, and um, uh, um i mean taking seriously people where they are yeah well, you actually, you coined it, you hit it right on the head, and you absolutely are a beautiful <laughs> exemplar of what it is to care out loud. And again, Livio, I'm so grateful for you to share your time, your wisdom, your insights and experiences with me and, and all of those folks that are listening today. Thank you so very much. I um, I hope our pods cross again sometime in the not too distant future, my friend. You're really, you're doing some amazing stuff. Thank you. Thank you very much, Mary. Thank you you're, for, for inviting me. You're most me. welcome. Absolutely. Thanks so much for listening in. I hope you will join me next week when I get to get real with Jaylee Hilliard, a former clinical director of neonatal and pediatric ECMO services and currently the senior director of clinical strategy at Angel Eye Health. But Jaylee's most important claim to fame is as mother to Everly Hilliard, her sweet daughter, born during the COVID pandemic at 32 weeks gestational age, prompting a 25-day NICU stay. Hope you'll join me. See you next week. Showing up on purpose makes the difference. And that begins when we care out loud together.